This evening we're going to consider God's amazing grace. I'm really going to uh, talk about that in particular in my last point. But as we're considering other things, see if you can and see God's grace running all the way through this chapter chapter 20 of Genesis. God's amazing grace. We're looking at the whole of Genesis chapter 20. In recent chapters of the book of Genesis, the Lord's gracious dealings with Abraham and his wife have been followed over quite a number of chapters now. For example, back in chapter 12, Abraham, as his name was back then, was called by God out of his homeland of Mesopotamia and he was told to go to a land that the Lord would show him with the promise that the Lord would make him a great nation and in him all families of the earth would be blessed. At the time of Abraham's calling, he was 75 years old and his wife Sarai, as her name was, she was 65. Whilst Abraham dwelt in Canaan, the land of promise, there was strife between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of his, of his nephew Lot. And so they parted company with Lot, choosing to head towards the fertile plains um, in, near Sodom. Whilst Abraham pitched his tent in Mamre, which is Hebron. Eleven years after Abraham was given the promise that there would be great blessings in him and his seed... Sarai's handmaid bore Abraham a son, whose name was Ishmael. At that time, Abraham was 86, his wife. She was 76 76 years old, and she was barren. Moving on 13 years to when Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord told him that his wife Sarai who by that time was 89 years old, it's easy, she's just 10 years younger than him, she was 89, she would bear him a child. Can you imagine this? She was barren and she was 89 years old. Nevertheless, the Lord said that uh, Sarai would bear Abraham a child and the child's name would be called Isaac. And the covenant that God had made with Abraham would be established in Isaac and not his son Ishmael, who was born to him by um, the handmaid Hagar. Also, the Lord changed Abraham's name to Abraham, meaning a father of many nations, and he changed Sarai's name to Sarah, meaning princess, for she would become mother of nations. That brought us to chapters 18 and 19, which were about Sodom and Gomorrah. The cry of those cities was great because of their sin, because their sin was grievous. Consequently, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed when the Lord rained upon them brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. But not before two angels took Abraham, Abraham's nephew Lot, Lot's wife, and their two daughters took them all by the hands. You worked that out. Four hands, four people there. They were all taken out of um, Sodom. 
by the hands of these angels and it was seen that Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I thought it worthwhile having a bit of a recap there because we've been away from Genesis for a few weeks. However, I've deliberately missed out something that happened in chapter 12 when Abraham first pitched his tent in the land of Canaan, having um, been told by God to leave his homeland, leave his family and go to a place where the Lord would, that the Lord would show him. Abraham went with the promise of God of great blessings, pitched his tent in the promised land of Canaan, but something happened towards the end or halfway through the chapter, chapter 12, when he first pitched his tent there. And I've left it until now to tell you about it because it is very, very similar to what we're, what we're going to consider this evening. You may recall that there was a grievous famine in Canaan. So what did Abraham do and his wife Sarah? They headed south and they went towards, they went into Egypt. And they sojourned in Egypt. As he came near to Egypt, he asked Sarai, who, who even though she was getting on in years, she was nevertheless a beautiful woman. And Abraham asked her to say that she was his sister, reasoning that if the Egyptians knew that she was his wife, they would kill him and keep her alive. The plan went ahead and what followed was that even though Abraham wasn't harmed, Sarai was nevertheless taken to Pharaoh and Abraham was showered with gifts by Pharaoh, most likely as a payment for Sarai. It would seem that Pharaoh uh, gave all those presents to Abraham for his sister. He was buying what he thought was Abraham's sister. However, the Lord intervened and Pharaoh and his family were plagued with many plagues. Pharaoh discovered that Abraham and Sarai were actually married. He rebuked him and then he sent them both away. What we shall see this evening are the repercussions for all who were involved when Abimelech, the pagan king of Gerar, took Sarah after Abraham said of her that she is his sister. First of all, what we consider, what we shall consider is that Abraham deceived the pagan king. Look again at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 20. And Abraham journeyed from thence towards the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. See how similar that is. Similar, but not the same as what happened in chapter 12. Why Abraham moved from Hebron to the Philistine region of Gerar is not given. Um, perhaps it was the stench of the brimstone coming from what was once Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe it was overwhelming. Maybe that area had become uninhabitable. I don't know. 
whatever the reason was, Abraham and Sarah journeyed to Gerar in the southwest of Canaan, and at the end of the day, that journey was in keeping with them being nothing more than sojourners in the land and strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Over 20 years had passed since Pharaoh took Sarah, not knowing that she was Abraham's wife. On that occasion, as has been said, when the Lord plagued Pharaoh with many plagues and he plagued his house, the pagan king rebuked Abraham and commanded his men men to send Abraham and Sarah away. Had Abraham learnt nothing from that experience 20 years ago? Had he really forgotten all about it? Perhaps with the passage of time, it didn't seem like such a big deal to him anymore. Perhaps he'd lost sight of how much he had put the safety of his wife at risk all those years ago in order to save his own life instead of simply trusting in the Lord, who in chapter 15 said to him, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. There clearly was an issue with trust 20 years earlier in Egypt, and even more so now in the land of the Philistines in Gerar, when you consider that the Lord had clearly told Abraham back in chapter 17, verse 21, that he would establish his covenant with Isaac, whom his wife Sarah would give birth to. I can't imagine that the eventual fulfilment of that covenant promise was contingent upon Abraham protecting his own life by concealing the fact that Sarah was his wife, thereby exposing his wife to danger. It may be argued that Abraham did nothing wrong inasmuch his wife Sarah really was his sister or at least his half-sister. As he said to Abimelech in verse 13 And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, that's unto unto Sarah, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we shall come. Say of me, he is my brother. As such, uh, he said to Abraham those things, even so that little scheme placed Sarah at great risk of being seen as a virgin and being available to any man who wanted her who desired to have her, and it was a failure on Abraham's part to protect his wife and to simply trust in the providence of God. As well as this occasion, and also the the one when Pharaoh was led to believe that Abraham and Sarah were not married, it's anybody's guess how many other times they may have pulled that stunt. I'm not saying they did, but it's quite possible when you consider that Abraham introducing his wife as his sister was something that he had concocted way back when he and Sarah departed from Mesopotamia. We see that to be the case in verse 13, where Abraham said to Abimelech in verse 13, as I just read to you before, God caused me to wander from my father's house, that's in Mesopotamia, that I said unto her, unto Sarah, this is thy kindness 
which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither um, we shall come, say of me, he is my brother. So he concocted that plan right from the beginning, from the time he left his father's house and left his father's uh, his homeland. We know that he used that, he put that into effect with Pharaoh, he did the same again with Abimelech in Gerar, in the land of the Philistines, and as I say, possibly other times that are not recorded in, in the Bible, we simply don't know. Having said all that, having said all that, how often do you, as a Christian, make the same mistakes, and more to the point, commit the same old sins, time and time again? Whether it's a case of you failing to trust the Lord in times of potential danger or simply those many times when you cave in to your pet sins, resulting in you lamenting your wretchedness when once again you've committed that same old sin that you thought was dead and buried and you so you lament your wretchedness while at the same time you thank God for saving you by his grace alone through faith in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had all your wretchedness and your besetting sins laid upon him at the cross. Secondly, had Abimelech sinned, it would have been against God. We'll have a look at verses 3 three through to 6 again. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I, suffered I thee not to touch her. <coughs> we live in evil times when our rulers seek to make marriage an irrelevance with husbands and wives now being referred to as partners and wicked laws are passed that legitimise same-sex marriage, despite the fact that at the beginning, when God instituted marriage, he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. The Lord opposes the desecration of the sacred marriage union very strongly indeed. That can be clearly seen in verse 3, where God came to the king of Gerar in a dream, and he said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. Can you imagine being told that by God in a dream? You, you're but a dead man or a dead woman. Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is um, uh, married to a, a husband, she is another man's wife. You can see there how God uh, is not pleased with adultery 
and, uh, and breaking that sacred marriage union between husband and wife. Then in verse 4, to Abimelech's credit, that pagan king's credit, he pleaded for his subjects who had no part in the taking of Sarah. And in verse 5, he pointed out that as a result of what he was told by Sarah and by Abraham, he had no idea that they were married. And God, who knows the thoughts and the intentions of everybody's heart, told Abimelech that the reason that he didn't defile Sarah was because the Lord saw the integrity of his heart in that matter and so the Lord intervened to stop him from lying with her. Note in verse 6 that had Abimelech touched Sarah, had he been with her, his sin would have been against God. Verse 6 again, And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. The sin would have been against God. Ultimately, when we sin against one another, our sin is against law, God rather, because it's God's laws that we're breaking. For that reason, when King David spoke from a broken and contrite heart and said to the Lord, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He said those words after he had taken another man's wife, Bathsheba, and then he arranged to have Bathsheba's husband killed in, the ba- in battle. And yet David cried out to God against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. It's worth remembering that the, the next time you're about to sin against someone, such as saying something about that person that simply isn't true, even if you're, even in, if in your sinful estimation, the lie that you're about to say is nothing more than a little white lie, a little fib, not only will you be sinning against that person, but your sin will be against God. Your sin, if you lie about someone, give a false testimony about someone, clearly you'll be sinning against that person, but you will be sinning against God for whom all things are possible but still we read in the Bible that God cannot lie. You who have just told a lie or are thinking about telling a lie are sinning against God who cannot lie and who considers lying lips to be an abomination. We need to think very carefully before we choose to sin. Because let's face it, much of the sin that we do is intentional. It's against God. Thirdly, Abimelech reproached Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 and 16. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee, 
that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? And verse 16, And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes, unto all that are with thee, and with all other. Thus she was reproved. I don't know if any of you Christians have ever received a well-deserved rebuke from someone who is not a Christian and who has no interest whatsoever in the Saviour's blood. And, they, and, and, and yet they pulled you up for something wrong that you have done. It's pretty painful when that happens. It shouldn't happen, but it does. Perhaps your unbelieving boss has had occasion to speak to you about your timekeeping or your productivity. Perhaps you've been caught using social media during work time. All those things can be a serious matter when you're being paid to do a job. Basically, the issue is one of stealing. Or maybe someone has made a comment to you concerning filthy or even blasphemous language that has come out of your mouth. Inappropriate words and conduct by you as a professing Christian can very easily bring the gospel of Christ into disrepute and they can present unbelievers with a golden opportunity to ridicule the gospel and the Christian faith. Consider Abraham, far from being a light for the gospel and a signpost pointing to the promised seed who was to come into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was a stumbling block when it came to his dealings with Abimelech, that pagan king of Gerar. Instead of witnessing the grace and the mercy of God to the king, Abraham, the father of many nations, ended up being rebuked by the king. When the king said to him, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? Abraham, what did he say? Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will slay me for my wife's sake. Well, actually, even though the people of Gerar were no doubt idol-worshipping, idolaters, they nevertheless did have a fear of God. Not a holy and reverential fear that the Lord's people have for the God of their salvation, but they did nevertheless fear God and his judgments. Just look again at verse 8. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears and the men were sore afraid. Although they didn't have the internet back then, perhaps word had reached them concerning the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah or perhaps they knew about some other judgment of God that they knew in their unregenerate heart of hearts did not come from any of the gods that were crafted by their sinful hands and were nothing more than the, the product of their sinful imaginations. They would have known that something like Sodom and Gomorrah came from something other than those idols that they worshipped. And the same goes for 
the judgment in the time of Noah. As, as for Sarah, she also was reproved or corrected by that pagan king. Note in verse 16 that even though the cat was well and truly out of the bag concerning Abraham's relationship to her, that he was her husband, Abimelech nevertheless referred to him as her brother when he said, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. John Gill's explanation of that verse is that the words of Abimelech are a continued biting sarcasm on Sarah as Abimelech twits her with calling Abraham her brother in the preceding clause. So in this he tells her that he had given him so much money to buy her a veil with and to supply her with veils from time to time to cover her eyes that nobody might be tempted to lust after her and that it might be known she was a married woman for in these countries married women wore veils for distinction and so not to be had by another nor would any be deceived by her. Fourthly, God's grace can be seen throughout this chapter. I don't know if where you've picked up on God's grace in this, but it's we see it all over the place. And I'm probably going to miss certain um, places where we see God's grace that maybe that you've seen and I haven't. When we consider Abraham, we can see the grace of God, the grace of God being God's unmerited favour towards those whom he has saved by his grace. Remember, Abraham was a man of God. He was the father of many nations and he had a genuine faith, a genuine saving faith. So when we look at Abraham, we who are Christians can learn a lot about that continued grace of God towards us as Christians. Not the grace that saved us, but but the grace that um, is with us day by day by day, each and every day. For example, all said and done, Abraham, instead of committing himself and his wife to the protective care of the Lord, his God, who had promised great things to him, he took matters into his own hands when he hid from Abimelech his marriage relationship to Sarah. Even so, look again at what the Lord said to Abimelech about Abraham in verse 7. Verse 7 there. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. The Lord said those gracious words about his erring servant, that he is a prophet, even though the prophet Abraham would soon be reproved by the pagan king. As for you, dear Christian, well, you're not a prophet of God, nor am I. But what I will say, and this is not to puff you up, to make you feel big about yourself, but rather to bring you to your knees in humble adoration as you praise Almighty God for his grace towards you a hell-deserving sinner 
Your saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given you the highest honours, never mind being a prophet of God. Jesus has given you the highest honours that can be given to men by giving you the great privilege of becoming a child of God. How about that? Does it get any better than that? Being a son or a daughter of Almighty God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a son of God, you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, your Lord. So this is us, saved by the grace of God. And you know as well as I do, there isn't a day that goes by when you don't put your foot, open your mouth and put your foot in it or do something that in some way dishonours God. And still, you're a child of God, a son, a daughter of God, with a heavenly inheritance, and not just a few blessings, but every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were singing Amazing Grace earlier. It truly is Amazing Grace, the grace of God. Last of all, I don't know if it has occurred to you just how gracious the Lord was in what we've been considering, even to a pagan king. According to verse 6, God withheld him. God withheld Abimelech from sinning against him. Restraining grace there, he stopped Abimelech. He saw the integrity of Abimelech's heart in that matter and so it was that he withheld Uh, he withheld Abimelech from lying with Sarah and sinning against him, sinning against God. That's an interesting one, very interesting one. Anyone here who imagines himself to be a good person, someone who has not yet sought the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins, I'm sure there's uh, one or two in here who are in that position, you're not yet trusting in Jesus as you'll save you from sin, presumably because you don't think you need to, you don't think you're a bad person, well, what I would say is take another look at yourself. Take the, take the blinkers off your eyes, take the veil away, have another look, examine your heart, be honest with yourself and think about it. Think about your greatest desires. The people and the things that you love most in this world, your chief ambitions, the things that you are striving to achieve in life and consider all those things as you consider the greatest commandment of God, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second greatest commandment is like unto it, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Where do your desires, the things that you want to do in in your life, uh, the things that you hold dearest to you, where does all this, where does God figure in all of this? Probably nowhere. But you're not on your own. I I am specifically talking to those who have not yet trusted in Jesus as their saviour. But it applies to all of us. The thing is, Christians become Christians because they recognise, that's not me. I don't love God with my whole being. Never have done. 
I can go a whole day without even giving Jesus a thought. How about that? I might say a prayer in the morning and then forget about the Lord for the rest of the day. That's not loving God with your whole being. Spend more time browsing the internet than reading my Bible. How is that loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul? That's all of us though. All of us. No one keeps those commandments. The fact is that you, along with everyone else in the world, have sinned and all your thoughts, your words and the things you do are tainted by sin and self because that's what we are all about as fallen creatures. It's all about me. That's why we need the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who who came into this world saying, I delight to do thy will. It is written of me in the volume of the book. And it was his food to do God's will, to do that which is pleasing to God. And a Christian is someone who is trusting in Jesus for his standing before God, his acceptance before God. We're clothed. A Christian is someone who is clothed in Jesus. The one who delighted to do God's will. And always, always, always did do God's will. Never ever sinned. But who did take upon himself the sins of all who are trusting in him. That's, a Christ, that's all a Christian is. No, no, no true Christian thinks that he's Mr. or Miss Wonderful. That is for sure. And when you consider what Jesus said, that out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, you can be sure that if God's restraining grace was not upon you, the the same grace that restrained or withheld Abimelech, If God was not restraining you and withholding you, you would be a lot worse than you are. Far worse. In fact, all of us would. Uh, And I'm quite confident to say this, that if it was not for God withholding us, again, I'm talking about Christians as much as anyone else, but in particular, I'm talking to you in here who don't seem to think that you have any need of the Saviour. If God did not withhold you, not only would you be doing the things that you, if you're being honest with yourself, you do do, you lie, you all lie, we all lie, and there's other things that you do, you've got your pet sins, I'm not asking anyone to own up to them now, but we all have our sins, the things that we do that we shouldn't do, or, or, or But if God did not withhold, as he did with Abimelech, I am utterly convinced that this world would be unbearably wicked and the streets would be red with blood, even on our island. I have no doubt about it. Think of the miserable places in this world, the, the war zones, the trouble hotspots. That's nothing. It would be the same everywhere in this world. Why is that? Because the heart is desperately wicked. And I know I bring this up time and again. I I can't, it's because it is always so relevant. 
You think what is happening at your local NHS hospital or abortion clinic, hidden out the way, babies are being slaughtered and no one really thinks too much about it. That should tell you something about how depraved the human heart is. Again, if God did not withhold his grace, things would be infinitely uh, more terrible in this world than they already are. With everyone involved in it, the carnage, the misery, the death. But the good news is, dear folks, that at the cross... The Lord Jesus Christ, he had the heavy load of all the depravity, all the wickedness of all who trust in him, laid upon him. And as I say, all who are trusting in him, their acceptance, and that includes people in here now, their acceptance is and always will be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I say to you, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Amen.